starting this morning, as Marty said, into a new series, really. It's going to include 1 Peter, but it's also going to include 2 Peter and Jude before we're done. But we'll be in 1 Peter here for a little while. 1 Peter generally follows the typical format for personal letters uh, in the first century Greek-speaking world. It always starts with the name of the sender, then the recipients, then a salutation, sometimes a thanksgiving, the body of the message, which may include some uh, moral exhortations of some kind, and a closing, often with personal greetings. And we'll see the first three of these right away when we get into First Peter, as we take a look at the only text we're going to cover this morning, which is the first two verses. Now, I'm not going to bore you with an extensive exegesis of all the Greek and stuff in the first two verses, just a little bit. But we're going to, in the past, we've done separate times when we've done sort of a background for, the, for a book. And uh, what we decided to do this time, we're going to just fold it into this first session on First Peter. So if you're missing that background information, you know, that time, then we're going to have that anyway. Or if you tried to avoid those, now you're stuck with it. Okay, so, first two verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Sender, recipient, salutation. There's the first parts of it. The salutation at the end of verse 2 there uh, also followed an alteration that you often find in the New Testament writers. Instead of the uh, word for greetings, which in Greek is some form of Cairo, the word Cairo, the New Testament writers often substituted the word grace, which is charis, so a little bit of a play on words there. And they often followed that with the addition and peace, which draws upon the Hebrew shalom. And here we have in Peter, we also have this additional maybe multiplied, that's all one word at the end of the Greek phrase. It's found in Second Peter and Jude. Uh, and interestingly enough, in letters written in Greek by a guy known as Gamaliel II. He was the son of the famous Gamaliel from, from uh, Acts in the New Testament, who is also Paul's teacher, as when he was a rabbi. Um, and this is all after the destruction of Jerusalem, of course, when Gamaliel II wrote, so it's about the same time close to the same time that all the things we're talking about here. Now his salutation didn't include the word grace, but it did say, uh, may peace be multiplied to you, or shalom be multiplied to you. Now, interestingly enough, uh, when you have phrases like that become sort of models or patterns for things, over time they often get shortened. You very seldom see them lengthened. And so, the addition that Peter makes of this may be multiplied to you is actually an indication that this was probably part of an earlier tradition uh, within the Jewish Christian uh, believers that uh, precedes even most of what Paul wrote. So we got something kind of unique and special here in this, uh, in this opening. It fell away as they began doing most of their correspondence with non-Jewish Gentile audiences, but they left the grace in there and the peace. Peter's letter could also be classified by an interesting Jewish form called a diaspora letter. Now, those have been around for a long time. In fact, if you go to, in your spare time today, open up Jeremiah 29, you're going to find out the first part of that is a diaspora letter. Uh, you can also find those, or those can be found in uh, the Apocryphal Old Testament writings, not unusual there. And actually, they're also the same form that was used by Gamaliel II 
And so he addresses some of these like to the sons of the diaspora of Babel or the sons of diaspora of Mede or the sons of diaspora of Greece. And so we see a, a very similar pattern here in what, Paul, what Peter has done with this letter. Peter identified himself as the sender and as the, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We know quite a lot about Peter. Uh, his given name was Simon. He was a commercial fisherman. Uh, he and his brother Andrew were the first disciples called by Jesus. Jesus gave him a nickname, Rock. Not the rock, rock, uh, which is Greek Petros, which is, of course, where we get the word Peter. Now, in Aramaic, that nickname was Kepa, which uh, was brought over into Greek as Kephos, and then Latinized in our English translation as Cephas. And that's why you sometimes see Peter referred to as Cephas in the, in the New Testament. Peter is frequently mentioned in the four Gospels. Uh, together with his brother James and John, he was privileged to witness the transfiguration uh, with the brothers James and John, not his brothers, his brothers and Lord James and John, but the transfiguration of Jesus. Uh, after the death and ascension and, and, uh, of Jesus, Peter was pr a primary spokesman for that early church. Uh, we see this in the first 11 chapters of Acts. He's addressing this curious crowd at Pentecost with really the first evangelistic speech given in the time of the New Testament. He's uh, healed a cripple in Acts chapter 3, being brought before the Jewish Sanhedrin along with John in Acts chapter 4. He extended the gospel to the Gentiles through his encounter with a Roman centurion named Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Now in Acts chapter 12, he was arrested by Herod Agrippa, and imprisoned with the real possibility that he was going to be executed because one of the reasons Peter was thrown into prison was because Herod had already executed James, the brother of John, and it was so popular he thought he might do somebody else. So uh, Peter, we know, if you remember that story, uh, was miraculously released from that imprisonment. And he went to a house where there were believers gathered uh, praying for his release in Acts chapter 12, in kind of a humorous little situation here. He went and knocked on the door of the gateway, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, and recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she didn't open the gate, but ran and reported to everybody that Peter was standing at the gate. Of course, they all guffawed this. Oh, no, no, that can't be him. He's pro it's probably his, his ghost or something. He's been killed. We probably lost him. Uh, well, it ended up he just kept knocking, and they finally let Peter in. And He's described to them how the Lord had released him uh, from this prison. And he said, uh, tell these things. Tell this to James. That's the brother of Jesus in this case. And to the other brothers and sisters in the church. And then he departed, it says, and went to another place. Where did he go? We're just told he went. Went away. Someplace else. Peter shows up again at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, but that's the last time we see him in Acts. Paul recorded a visit by Peter to Antioch in Galatians chapter 2, but there, and there's some debate about whether that was before or after the Council, council of Jerusalem. But more important for our study and of the, of the book of Peter are the questions, where was Peter before these appearances at Antioch and in Jerusalem at the council, and where was he after those events? Apparently he had some connection with the church at Corinth. Uh, around AD 55, Paul wrote to the, first, to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, there's Peter. I follow Christ. This would infer that Peter was engaged in some kind of evangelism and ministry in a Greek-speaking area near Corinth. We all know, also know that he was traveling from 1 Corinthians because Paul rhetorically asked the question to the Corinthians, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord in Cephas? 
in their travels and their ministry? The answer to the question about where Peter was after this miraculous escape from prison appears to be, you know, kind of many places as far as the New Testament goes. Outside of the New Testament, there's a very strong tradition uh, that Peter spent a lot of time in Rome after he left. He was probably not permanently in Rome. That's implied by nothing else if by the fact his name is left off of all the greetings at the end of Paul's letter to the Romans, which is in about 55 AD. It may have been something of a headquarters for him. The, uh, the late third, fourth century Christian historian Eusebius reported sources that we no longer have that located Peter in Rome as early as 42 AD. Uh, and it was probably in Rome when he wrote this letter. At the very end in chapter 5, we'll look at this again, but he has this cryptic phrase, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So the consensus is that that's a reference to the church in Rome, and Babylon's kind of a code word. Uh, Rome at this time was the capital of a dominant empire, and Babylon was the capital of an Old Testament empire that exiled the Jews, that deported them all from their land. A widely accepted date for the letter for 1 Peter is in the early 60s. You can kind of reason through this. The uh, early church tradition held that Peter was executed in Rome by Nero uh, shortly after Paul's execution in the same circumstances. Uh, since Nero's reign ended in 68 AD, it had it been written before then. We also need to allow for a second Peter to be written. So it has to be around long enough to do that, because we'll see that second Peter claims to be the second letter that Peter wrote to these people um, before he died or was executed, which pushes the latest date back into the mid-60s. And there are some commentators that argue for dating the letter even much earlier uh, during the time period between when Claudius threw all the Jews out of Rome, Peter probably went with them as well, um, and the, when Nero took over. So that was in 54, between around 50 to 54, somewhere in that time. From early church uh, history, we know that Peter has been the accepted author of uh, both the letters bearing his name. Uh, some of the early church fathers that attest to that, that all lived in the second century, Irenaeus, quotes from 1 Peter. Uh, there's probably some quotes from, the, from Peter in Polycarp's writings and his letters. Uh, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian. It seems unlikely that whoever delivered the letter would knowingly let the recipients think that Peter sent it to them if somebody else wrote it. So that's a pretty good argument for the fact it was... Peter that wrote the letter. Nonetheless, with the rise of uh, form criticism and evolutionary theories of religion in the 19th century, it became very popular to argue that the letter was written long after Peter died and his name was just lent to it for authority. Um, and there's even more recently some more conservative not a lot, but some more conservative Christian scholars who have taken the position that this letter is uh, synonymous. So I'm going to move out of the way here so you can see this. So, synonymous, false name, especially pen name. The arguments against authorship by Peter are following these four categories, doctrinal, linguistic, historic setting, and presence of Christianity. And I'm going to use those as kind of a springboard for two things. One is to present the argument for Peter having written this and then use the details around this as kind of weaving in some of this background that we want for this letter. So the first thing we have is this doctrinal thing. What is that? Well, it's really based on the idea that Peter's letter sounds too much like Paul that the theological content of 1 Peter, you know, was, it was just all taken from Paul's letters by somebody else. And it was really basically just doubting Peter could come up with any theology like this on his own. Which is kind of cruel. He's not here to defend himself, you know. Um, 
someone else wrote the letter, they say, uh, who was familiar with Paul's teaching. They put Peter's name on it. Uh, there are a number of issues involved with this position, but I won't get into them. For now, let's just say that most New Testament authors now, more, the more current information, contend that the affinities between Peter and Paul aren't a matter of them plagiarizing. It's a matter of them drawing from a common tradition. That makes a lot more sense. This is old Occam's razor right here, the simplest explanation. Um, and so they do on the same tradition in Christianity, and they went a little bit different direction with kind of things that they did. One of the areas that saying that this Peter's was, theology was too Pauline uh, is the fact that in First Peter, we're going to have a unique contribution that Peter made to theology in the early church. And this was connecting the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 with Jesus. And not only that, but spinning out of that a whole theology of suffering. And we'll be talking about that for the next three months as we go through First Peter. The next line of objection for Peter, being the writer, the author, is linguistic. This is probably the one that most of them pick up on. The Greek in the letter is considered too good for what is known about Peter. The quality ranks right up with that of Hebrews and Luke Acts, written by Luke, um, which were both written by well-educated native Greek speakers. Peter was not a native Greek speaker. He probably grew up speaking Aramaic. <clears throat> the other thing they complain about is that all the quotes in 1 Peter are from the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. <clears throat> now, an answer to this is pretty simple as well. There's really no reason why Peter could not have had decent skills in Greek. He grew up in Galilee, uh, which would, had a lot of Greek-speaking people in it, and it was right adjacent to areas that were totally Greek-speaking. So it's probably a sec pretty easy second language for him, and it was this language of commerce, the uh, lingua franca of the first century. <clears throat> that helps some as a second language but it doesn't account for the quality of the Greek the difference between the Greek in 1 Peter and 2 Peter and you can't see that as much in the English but they really are very very different in the vocabulary and the syntax so how do we account for this literary quality in 1 Peter I think it's uh, the best explanation is that Peter probably used an amanuensis. An amanuensis is someone who takes dictation and in the course of that is given quite a bit of leeway or flexibility in how they actually word this dictation. And there's strong evidence that, that the, more than Peter, Paul used uh, an amanuensis as well. That was very common in the first century where you had limited literary skills, particularly writing skills. <clears throat> so another part that kind of plays into this, well, we'll talk more about amanuensis when we get to chapter 5, but uh, there's another area of recent research that's kind of interesting that has examined the text of First Peter to establish the level of what's called linguistic or dynamic interference. And that comes from one language into another, usually from a first language into a second language that you're trying to use. Uh, if you've ever gone out there and bought something that says made in China and then tried to read the instructions, that's an example of linguistic interference. Um, th you can tell this was not a native English speaker that wrote this. Um, <clears throat> and that's what this looks for. So if Peter spoke Aramaic as his first language, do we see linguistic interference in what was written in 1 Peter? And even though it was taken as dictation and allowed some flexibility with the syntax vocabulary, that evidence is there. It follows the flow of thought and the way of expressing things that someone who natively spoke Aramaic would present, how they would present it as opposed to who was a native Greek speaker. So, as far as the, the, the Greek Old Testament being quoted, uh, interestingly enough, Peter holds the number three spot for the frequency of Old Testament quotations and allusions relative to the size of the letter. Hebrews is first, 
Revelation is second. Well, Hebrews was written by a Jew who is probably a native Greek speaker. Revelation was written by Peter's old fishing partner, John. And Peter is number three in that. So we're going to see lots of quotes from the Greek Old Testament in First Peter as well. Which makes sense as well because he's preaching primarily to Gentiles, even though he was supposed to be the apostle to the Jews. He's preaching to Gentiles whose first interest in having a Bible is going to be the Old Testament. That's all we have right now. The canon of the New Testament's not there. And what Bible are they going to read as Greek speakers? The Greek Old Testament. So he's really writing to an audience specifically. The historic setting is another place where we have some objections, and that really comes from two things. One is the description of the church leadership in chapter 5 appears to use some terminology not common until very late in the first century. We'll deal with that when we get to it. And the other one is that the extent of persecution that was indicated in 1 Peter. Now, there are some assumptions about what this persecution is that I think end up getting read in to the passage. So we're going to look at the verses real quick here that talk about this persecution. What are, we, what are we dealing with? So at this point, and you can see most of that, I hope, um, we got some quotes from Second Peter, First Peter chapter two, rather, and First Peter chapter three, and we have in the, in the first one there, when they speak against you. That sounds more like verbal abuse to me than it does torture. Uh, although, okay, don't go into that. Anyway, the, uh, then we have, by doing good, you should put silence to the ignorance of foolish people. Again, something has to do with verbal abuse, verbal difficulties. And three, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling or canceling for canceling, whatever you do in our culture. And finally, having a good conscience when you are slandered. So this all looks like people just saying bad things to Christians. So unless you're really into this, you know, woke, you're, you know, offending me kind of stuff, this is what was going on. That's probably most of it. Now, there are some passages in 1 Peter that do seem to talk about a little more serious persecution. Let go. There we go. Okay, so we start out right away in 1 Peter chapter 1, having been grieved by various trials. In chapter 4, we have a fiery trial, and again, suffers as a Christian. And in chapter 5, we have this phrase, the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, doesn't that look a little more like some sort of serious persecution? Well, maybe. The assumption made by those who argue that this is what proves that, take these <coughs> phrases and try to, you know, maybe tease a little more out of them. Like the fiery trial. Well, you know what? We, we know that something that happened with Nero's persecution was he would suspend Christians, cover them with flammable material, and light them on fire to light up his garden parties. But that persecution was very limited in time, you know, very violent, and very limited to Rome. It wasn't much beyond that. <clears throat> I think it's just as easy to see this fiery trial as a, as a metaphor that you see throughout the New Testament for refining our faith. Refining how? Sometimes the New Testament writers use refining like you refine gold in a fire, turn the heat up. And so we have this, I think, really more like what we see in chapter 1, a tested genuineness of your faith is what this fiery trial is all about. Another example for reaching this formal persecution thing is really the last verse that we looked at here in chapter 5 about those throughout the world, suffering throughout the world. Uh, but again, there really wasn't any empire-wide systematic persecution of the church 
until the end of the second century, which is long after even the late daters of Peter would have Peter written. At the time that we were closest to this would be the, the persecution under Domitian. We talked about that a little bit with, when we talked about Revelation. But again, that was sporadic. You know, it was just certain areas. And then uh, in, under his follower Trajan, you did have Christianity outlawed as religion. But it took that long to the end of the first century before the Romans figured out that the Jews and Christians were different. The final one is the presence of Christianity in the areas that this letter was written to. How they, we have no information on how the gospel got to any of these areas that Peter wrote to. Um, we don't have any evidence that Peter ever had a ministry there. And so the argument is because this area in northern Asia Minor is so remote that Christianity really didn't get there till long after Peter was executed. So how could this have been written by him? Well, that gets us to really more of the text. So let's take a look at some maps and to whom this was sent. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, Roman provinces' boundaries are fluid. They're always changing all during this time period. So when you pick a map to kind of do something like this with, you just sort of pick one. Um, you can see Bithynia and Pontus up there. You see Galatia. And actually, Galatians was sometimes used for the area further south also, south of the, the Taurus mountain range, which runs along the, the southern part of Asia Minor. Cappadocia, you have over here. And Asia, which is that area that's kind of eh, heading towards Smyrna right there. The... Um, This was not a completely isolated area up on the north, but you really didn't know, we don't know much about how the gospel got there. Now the letter itself, if, it was, if this is an order of delivery, this is a circular letter, so there's probably copies for each of these areas. So probably the route would have gone something like this. Whoever delivered it took a ship across the Black Sea and landed at one of these two ports up here in the northeast. And then they moved south into Galatia, and then back east to Cappadocia, then across to Asia. But again, all of this is north of the Taurus mountain range, even though it's fairly, and there's lots of roads and things in there, even though it's not real uh, densely populated. And then finally, northwest again into Bithynia to kind of complete the circuit. So let's think a little bit about how the gospel may have gotten to this areas. We know Paul didn't take it. In Acts chapter 16, it recalls how, how Paul and his uh, associates went through the region of the uh, southern part of Galatia and Phrygia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mycenae, I added that one up there, you can see where that is, Mycenae, and uh, we're going to go into Bithynia, it says the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to do so. So it wasn't Paul. It wasn't uh, his direct connection there. There are other possibilities. Historical records of the time indicate that there are substantial communities of Jews in the north of Asia Minor. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, where it has that list of those who are attending the Feast of Pentecost, it says Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. It's possible that some who heard Peter's message may have been among those converted to Pentecost. And then they took that message, their new faith, back to their homelands. Another possibility was the gospel was spread from the churches founded in the more popular areas to the south and to the southeast, like Ephesus. We know that Epaphras was one of Paul's converts who took the Christianity from Ephesus and took it to the Lycus Valley to Colossae and Hierapolis and Laodicea. Those are more on the interior. The interior. Uh, there's no reason why people couldn't take it further. In fact, the silversmiths in, uh, in Ephesus complained that almost all of Asia 
because of Paul has been persuaded to turn away a great many people saying that the gods are not made with hands are not really gods. It's cutting into their business. More recent theory that fits the information from many sources is that the believers in these areas up in the north of Asia Minor were part of one of the expulsions of Jews and probably Christians from Rome. We have one of those recorded in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 18, Paul was visiting Corinth. When he came to Corinth, he found a Jew named Aquila who was a native of Pontus who was already a Christian. It doesn't say that directly, but he must have been because it never says they, he had, Paul had to preach to him or his wife. And recently came from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. The expulsion was probably around 49 A.D. And so we have Aquila, who is already a believer from Pontus, whether he became a believer in Rome or elsewhere. He's now in Corinth. He didn't go. But at the time, by, you know, by the time you get to Augustus, you had a lot of people who were getting thrown out of Rome. They were just, they, you know, it caused trouble. They just get you all out of there. If you're an ethnic group, they could be identified. And what began to happen is the Roman emperors would, would say, okay, well, you could, we'll just throw you out, or I got a deal for you. We have this area that's not been very well colonized or Romanized. We'll support a colony if you'll go there. And so a number of colonies <coughs> were formed in this northern part of Asia Minor from people thrown out of Rome. <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> who may have been Christians because they couldn't tell the Jews and the Christians apart by this time. <clears throat> they were exiles, which is a foreshadowing, um, <clears throat> both literally and metaphorically. <clears throat> and I'm going to take a minute here. <clears throat> and do my Demosthenes imitation. Anybody know who Demosthenes was? Famous Greek orator who improved his speaking skills by speaking with pebbles in his mouth. <clears throat> so let's, let's get back to the, to the text here. The beginning of the text in verse 1, those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. <clears throat> this phrase is three words <clears throat> in the Greek text. And I warrant a closer look, I think, at each one of them. The first word, which is translated to those who are elect, it's only one word, is eklektos, <clears throat> which means chosen or elect. Uh, the word's used 22 times in the New Testament. We most recently saw it in our study in Revelation in chapter 17, verse 14, where the conquering lamb, who is also the king of kings and the lord of lords, had with him those who are called and chosen, eclectos, and faithful. Before that, we saw it in our study of Paul's prison epistles in Colossians 3, where he exhorts the Colossians to put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. <clears throat> it will be used three times in chapter 2. I'll leave those for Marty to get to. But I would make the note here that God's election or choosing, both ancient and modern, is what makes them exiles with citizenship in heaven rather than on earth. <clears throat> the next word, which is exiles, as it's translated, is peripodemos in Greek. It can mean resident, alien, or foreigner, pilgrim, sojourner. It's a person for, who for a period of time lives in another place, a foreign country. The second part of the word actually has the idea of being transit, transitory, moving in it. I have a picture to demonstrate this. <clears throat> it's my brother. He worked in China for a number of years. <clears throat> 
and in a joint venture pro project back when we were still talking to China. <coughs> and when he was there working, it was a very, a very big factory, a big manufacturing facility in a city of almost a million people. He was the only Westerner. <coughs> Pardon me again. He referred to himself usually as an expatriate. I don't know whether he got that from the, some of the Brits he met over there or not, but a word they use commonly. But I looked it up in the dictionary way back when. American Heritage Dictionary. An expatriate can mean one who is taking up residence in a foreign country, or the second definition, one who has renounced one's homeland. <coughs> kind of interesting, the two of those together. But I think expatriate is a pretty good fit for translating peripodamus, as Peter used it. Uh, even the secondary meaning has some relevance when you consider that the reality is that we've been called to leave a world of sin into which we were born and to treat that world as born because of a new birth. You know what other theme Peter really gets at a lot? Born again. <coughs> A quote one commentator makes I think is really good on this. <clears throat> to be chosen by God and committed to Christ is by definition to become a visiting foreigner, a resident alien in the world and thereby disenfranchised from its entitlements that are based on undivided allegiance to its gods. We'll come back to this in a minute. The final word that we have in this first three words of this uh, <clears throat> salutation here is... Uh, diaspora, which is translated the dispersion. It's a state or condition of being scattered, or the place where you find people who are scattered. It's used three times in the New Testament only. Um, it's the use the Jews term the Jews used to reference their fellows or brethren scattered throughout the Mediterranean world. Um, <clears throat> having the word diaspora in verse 1, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, and then having Babylon in chapter 5, verse 13, is really an invitation for the Christian exiles in Asia Minor here to see their own situation as parallel with that of God's people scattered throughout the world. The next verse begins, uh, verse 2, with a set of three prepositional phrases that all modify eclectos, or elect, or chosen. <clears throat> the phrases introduce important New Testament terminology of salvation, and they all reflect kind of a Trinitarian relationship. <clears throat> you can see it there. It starts <clears throat> according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling of his blood. If you kind of lay these out, the three phrases, think of each one starting with the phrase part, to those elect or chosen, according to foreknowledge of God, by or in sanctification or holiness of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling with blood of Jesus Christ. <coughs> Now, the foreknowledge of God, that word is prognosis. That's taken right into English. You may have heard that one before. I know Ben has. <clears throat> the, uh, in the New Testament, it's only used twice here. And interestingly enough, in Peter's speech at Pentecost. It was used there to refer to the foreknowledge that God had of Jesus being delivered up. The verb that's related to this is used in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. That again, of Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And interestingly, we, we can connect this theologically with Paul's writing in uh, Romans 8, 29, where he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. 
Theologian Millard Erickson notes that there's a Hebrew word behind both these words in Greek, foreknowledge and to foreknow, and that it signifies more than an advanced knowledge or precognition. It carries the connotation of a very positive and intimate relationship. This then is not a neutral advanced knowledge of what someone will do, but an affirmative choice of that person. The references to foreknowledge in Romans 8.29 and 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2 are presenting knowledge not as the grounds for a predestination, but as a confirmation of it. We're chosen. We learned that in Revelation, written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. The next phrase, the sanctification, or setting apart or making holy, could all mean that, of those who are elect or chosen, is accomplished in or by the Holy Spirit. This begins with the Spirit convicting us of sin and righteousness and judgment, continuing to lead us into truth, uh, <clears throat> produces in us the fruit of the Spirit, affirms we are in Christ, and indwells us to produce a life of righteousness. <clears throat> the final prepositional phrase, we find out that the sanctification of the Spirit is for a purpose, and that purpose is for obedience and sprinkling with blood. Now, there's some debate regarding the syntax of this last phrase, which is why a lot of differences in different translations and how they put it. What I have up here is a literal rending, rendering of it. <clears throat> and I think the best understanding of what Peter was doing here was he was making an allusion to Exodus 24. Now that situation in Exodus, we have Moses there. He's read the words of the Lord and all the rules to the people. And they answered him with one voice that they would obey all the words of the Lord has spoken. Well, Moses then reads him the book of the covenant, which may be just the same thing again. And the people again say, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and will be obedient. Finally, Moses sprinkled blood from the sacrifice on the people, which was an act of ceremonial cleansing. And while he was doing that, said, Behold the blood of the covenant. <clears throat> now, Peter will talk about obedience two more times in chapter 1. And, of course, the story of Exodus didn't turn out so well. <clears throat> Before they even finalized the covenant, they were making a golden calf. But I think it's <clears throat> significant that in Exodus, it was the beginning of this sojourn, the beginning of this journey through the wilderness to the promised land. And the writers in the New Testament take that as a metaphor for the Christian life. <clears throat> One of those places we see that <clears throat> is in Hebrews chapter 12. It says, We've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels and in festal gathering, and all the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkling blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Word sprinkling, same word that's used here in the Septuagint that we have in First Peter. The new covenant. The new covenant is different because that salvation, as we see in this little three phrases, in, chapter, in verse 2, makes our salvation completely the Lord's doing. It's a work of grace. Now, I want to come back to this discussion briefly here of exiles and expatriates, which <clears throat> I believe is a theme of First Peter. For certain, it means living our lives in accordance with the word of God, with the values of our true home. Peter wanted his audience to be clear about the reality of what they can expect from a world that perceived them as strange and foreign. The word translated exile <clears throat> is one of a set of related terms found in similar contexts in 1 Peter and Hebrews 11. 
Now, for those of you who like doing word studies and getting into this kind of stuff, this is slides is especially for you. So I've lined up all four of the Greek words with the transcription there in English, so you can kind of see them, that are used in these, and I've color-coded them where they show up. <coughs> so parapodemos, uh, we see that in uh, <coughs> Hebrews 11:13, <coughs> that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, those who, uh, these people from the Old Testament saints. And we have this again in 1 Peter 1, verse 1. And then we have it again in chapter 2, verse 11, as sojourners and exiles, where he's encouraged the recipients of his letter to uh, abstain from the passions of the flesh, the wage of war against your soul. And the second word here, sojourners, is up there right next to it, parakois, paroikos, excuse me, paroikos, um, and then proikeo, which is a verb we find in Hebrews 11:9. By faith, Abraham went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land. And finally, in Prochia, we have in uh, where is it here? Verse 17 of chapter one. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. All four of those words are in the same semantic domain, have the same sense to them, same meaning to them. So I want to tease that out a little bit with a couple of uh, quotes here. Um, a theologian named Miroslav Volf, anybody ever heard of him? Didn't think so. Uh, <clears throat> he's currently at Yale Divinity School. We won't hold that against him. Uh, he was born in Croatia. His interest... He actually was teaching at Fuller for a while as well. But uh, um, his interest is in how the church relates to culture and politics and economics. He's written a couple of pretty important books for that, on that. I haven't had a chance to read them. But I have read an article he wrote back in 1994 and published called Soft Difference is the name of the article. And he uses that as kind of a metaphor or a, a way of understanding how the Christian lives, how we need to live in the world around us. I want to share a quote from it. He wrote, Christians, Christians do not come into their social world from outside, seeking either to accommodate their new home, like second-generation immigrants would, shape it in the image of the one they have left behind, like colonizers, would, or establish a little haven in the strange new world reminiscent of the old as resident aliens would. They are not outsiders who either seek to become insiders or maintain strenuously the status of being outsiders. Christians are insiders who have diverted from their culture by being born again. They are by definition those who are not what they used to be, those who do not live like they used to live. <clears throat> the sense of being an exile expatriate during our time on this earth has two dimensions to it. <clears throat> One is vertical, toward our heavenly home. We saw this in Revelation. Uh, we see it expressed or can read it expressed by Paul in Philippians. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. As Marty reminded us, our allegiance and our loyalty is first and foremost to our Lord Jesus Christ. But there's also a horizontal dimension to our lives as exiles or sojourners or expatriates that governs how we relate to the society and the culture in which we temporarily reside. Peter used these terms, I think, to distance his readers from the hold their society may have had over them before they came to Christ or even after they were trying to live the Christian life. 
but he does not call for withdrawal from society. Instead, he encourages Christian engagement with society in a manner that might be expected of foreigners who wish to maintain their identity where they originally were from, in this case, our heavenly identity. He exhorted them to dwell respectfully. That's an important theme in First Peter. In their host nation, but participate in its culture only to the extent that its values and customs coincide with the ones they want to preserve or the ones we want to preserve. Now this idea of being exiles, of being expatriates, this idea of being in the world and not of it is a challenge, a big challenge. But this metaphor of exiles or foreigners is one that's stuck, I think. And we have evidence for this, actually, in a piece of uh, apologetic, apologetic literature from the second century. And it's called The Letter to Diognetus. It's a couple of generations after Paul wrote, and this is an excerpt from that, where he is defending Christians. For the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country nor language, nor the customs they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth is as a land of strangers. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men, and are persecuted by all. I think that's a pretty good description of an idea that carried forward pretty strongly, and we can thank Peter for that. Peter makes it clear that the inevitable conflict of values will occur. It will occur. You can't get away from it. The result will be some kind of suffering. We don't know the degree of that or exactly how that will take its form, but it will be there. And the question really is, how should we respond? The whole letter of First Peter is answering that question. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, even though it's thousands of years old, it touches us where we live and can't touch us where we live. I pray that as we continue looking at this letter from Peter, that uh, you will help us to take hold of some of the things that he exhorted to make us better representatives of you in a world that is truly not our own, a world that is going to become just more foreign as we grow in our oneness with Jesus Christ. We commit this to you in Jesus' name.